All right, welcome back to a bonus episode of the Blasters and Blades podcast. So, hey, all you crazy sci-fi and fantasy fans, time for your daily dose of shenanigans over here at the Blasters and Blades podcast. Just three nerdy veterans geeking out over our science fiction passions and fantastical fantasies, a place where magic is king, the sky is the limit, and space is the place. So without further ado, let me tell you what we're doing right now. We're getting ready to uh, release some of the archive that we found from when we were the sci-fi shenanigans. Uh, we're going to get those up there for, for the posts that were brought down. We thought you might enjoy them. Um, and so without further ado, let us uh, let us roll that beautiful... Oh, wait, they're going to sue me. Play it. Hey, all you crazy sci-fi fans. Time for your daily dose of insanity. Over here at the Sci-Fi Shenanigans Podcast with your hosts, J.R. Handley and me, Chris Winder. Just two nerdy veterans out over a science fiction passion, a place where the sky's the limit, spaces the place, and nerds run the world. Without further ado. All right, geez, Chris, shut up. Quit taking the show already. So uh, today we, we decided to do something a little different. Uh, we'd mentioned we were going to do some book reviews, and today we brought in a guest and literati, Paul E. Cooley, another author, and we are going to review Robert Heinlein's Starship Troopers, the novel, not the movie. Um, it's a classic piece of military science fiction written in 1959, and it was groundbreaking in many ways, and we'll be talking about those today. Uh, so, Paul, um, we invited you to do this novel with us because your uh, literary background, you got all edumacated in, in book learning and stuff in it. So, book learning? Uh, <laughs> book learning. We don't do book learning. So, uh, <laughs> do you want to tell us a little about, about yourself before we, uh, before we get started? I am the author of The Black, the Parsec award-winning uh, The Black series, and uh, The Derelict Saga, which is mixes military, sci-fi, space opera, horror, all the good stuff um, all together. And wrapping up that third book, I've been podcasting all my stories for free for, oh my God, nine years now. And uh, um, you can go check out my stuff, iTunes, etc., all over the place. And Awesome. Uh, like like always, we will have those links for you in the show notes of uh, this episode. So just as a brief summary, um, and I swear Chris is really there. He even sometimes talks, <laughs> but uh, we'll get him there. But uh, we have, we're going to give a brief summary of the, the novel. We'll talk about the characters and their development, the plot, the world building and description, and then some major themes. And then we'll conclude with uh, talking about our overall thoughts on the novel. Um, so do you want to do the, uh, summary there, Chris? So they believe me when I say you're a real boy. I'm a real boy. I, I actually, something I'd like to mention before reading the, the notes for the, for the prep for the show, I had no idea that this was written in 1959. I thought it was much more recent. I, the, the, the story blew my mind. And I had to go verify it. I thought you were wrong. No, it was it was groundbreaking in more ways than that. Uh, I think he was one of the first science fiction authors to uh, involve the or to give women the role that he did in combat. If you, uh, and then he's also was one of the first ones to do minority characters as the main character. If uh, Juan Johnny Rico was Filipino, that is that that just that blows my mind. I, I had no idea. I'm I am an uncultured swine. <laughs> no, just not very well read. <laughs> oh, yeah, and that too. <laughs> All right, so why don't we uh, jump right to the summary? Where's the summary? Oh, there's the summary. Okay. In Robert A. Heinlein's controversial bestseller, a recruit of the future goes through the toughest boot camp in the universe and into battle against mankind's most alarming enemy. Join the army and see the universe. The historians can't seem to settle whether to call this one the Third Space War or the Fourth, or whether the First Interstellar War fits it better. The soldiers just call it the Bug War. Everything up to then and still later were incidents, patrols, or quote-unquote police actions. In the mobile infantry, everybody fights, but you're just as dead if you buy the farm in an incident as you are if you buy it in a declared war. So, uh... What do you guys you think that summary pretty much fits the book well? Did they they nail that one when they wrote the ad copy? I guess. I think it's so much more than that, though. 
Yeah, I agree with I agree. It's 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 the typical uh, back cover copy, which which barely touches or breaks the surface of what the book is really about. That's that's yeah, kind of the most cases. I also noticed that the back copy in older books is a little bit different than the way we would do it. I think today, if you compare them side by side, I can't put yes. my finger on how it's different. It just feels different when you look at older back copy and, and the newer stuff. Well, look at this. They don't they don't say the character's name. There's no, there's nothing personal about him in here at all. Oh, you're right. It is all very much done about, it is all about the universe. It is about the story that you're going to encounter. It has nothing to do with anything personal at all. It's a lot more cerebral. Yes. And, and you'll notice it doesn't even mention anything that happened on earth. It doesn't mention that there, you know, what it does. It just doesn't mention any of that. It just says basically Oh yeah, well there was this war that happened. Let's talk about it. Yeah, but the war is only so it doesn't really give much away at all. It, it, it's only a piece of the book. It's not even. It's 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 like saying Full Metal Jacket is all about boot camp. <laughs> no, I, I think it, yeah, the, the boot camp scene was important, but it's not the whole yeah, thing. That 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 is correct. It is, is and, and in fact, if I think if you compare this book to Full Metal Jacket, um, actually you shouldn't do that. Compare this book to. Um, Oh crap! The short timers. There we go. That's the book. Um, the Full Metal Jacket is based on, and there there are a lot of similarities between the between this book and in that one. Interesting. Okay, I didn't know that. I've bought the book. I just it's on my uh, growing to be read list. Short timers. It's, I mean, it's, it's a so. quick read, and it's definitely worth it. And however bad you thought the movie was, as far as what they did to those guys in Vietnam, it's worse. Oh. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I enjoyed the movie, <laughs> the boot camp scenes and stuff. So most of that is ripped directly from the book, but the book gets a little more involved. <laughs> <laughs> All right, making oh, a note to look it up. Not for my twelve-year-old to read. No, Gustav, <laughs> Gust- Gustav Hosford's The Short Timers is a fantastic book. Okay, I know. I read. Um, oh, good. Tim O'Brien did a lot of the things good they books carried. Yes. Yeah. So, all right, well, let's uh, move in segue. to talking about, <laughs> yes, segue. Uh, we'll get better at this, I promise everybody. But uh, so the characters uh, in this book, the main character was basically Juan Johnny Rico, who was a mobile infantry soldier uh, who we follow through his career progressions. So uh, since you're the guest, Paul, you want to tell us what you thought about the main character? He is a prop. For all intents and purposes, he is a prop. He is simply uh, someone there to go through Heinlein's universe. Oh, he is the the universe exposition device. Yeah, he he basically because he has, and in fact, when when he first signs up for um, for government service, it's pretty obvious when when that whole deal goes down that he has no idea what he wants to do with his life. He is the idle rich, right. And I think that's that's part of this. The guy has really no identity. He has no attachment to anything, uh, which is one of the reasons why I think he's so successful in what he does in the book, because he's not weighed down by uh, any kind of personal relationships or any ties. I mean, he's 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 almost completely divorced from the people and the lives that are going on around him. And I don't know if, if that was Heinlein's purpose, but that's that's how I read it. Is that uh, well? This is the second time I've read it, but it's been thirty years. But the uh, you know the bottom line is that he doesn't really have much connection to anything human. It's true. Yeah. Feeling him out of his comfort zone is not a difficult thing to do. It, that may have just been to make the story easier to tell. Maybe, but even even when he talks about uh, uh, girls. You know, not being able to, you know, he likes them. He's 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 heterosexual, but he doesn't know how to talk to them. He doesn't know how to relate to them. And this is this is somebody who went to a high school with a lot of different people, and one of his friends w- was a woman. So it, it it's 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 got all these differing, um, uh, seemingly dichotomous statements coming out. And the and the funny thing is, you you were dealing with a with a first person narrator. So there's no telling how many lies he's telling while he's telling the story. Right. True. Or what, so what that makes some of, because some of, of the suspect. View. Do what? Or wait, what he's just getting wrong because it's his point of view. It's his opinion. Maybe not outright lying. 
Right. And and the thing is, he just doesn't want to talk about it, which fits actually fits his his personality and other parts of the book where he decides that he just doesn't want to you know discuss what he brought up. Right. So I kind of agreed with with you, Paul, about the the sort of more of a prop device because I, I sort of saw, didn't see a whole lot of character development with him. I mean, we see career progression, but that's not the same thing as personal growth. Um, we see him parroting his high school morality and philosophy, I think was the name of the class, the uh, the teacher a lot. Yes. I, I do, like we mentioned in the in the intro, that it was significant that, you know, we find out that he's a minority character. And, you know, for when it was written, that would have been groundbreaking, especially given that Heinlein, you know, was in the Navy in the 50s. And so, you know, the Filipino sailors back then would have a lot of them unfortunately would have just been like the mess cranks or you know the, the stewards you know serving the officers uh, in the wardroom yeah and so for him to to take that personal experience and say one of them could have been the hero i mean that alone was significant hmm. i think but as far as juan rico himself it's like eh, anybody could have slotted in that story and nothing would have really changed i don't think an interesting historical footnote but i didn't really i don't know juan just wasn't doing it for me <laughs> well i i Phrasing. don't i don't i i said nothing i don't think that uh um like i said i i don't think that was the point i think the point was to maybe heinlein was making a point about people who don't know where they fit in the world and that they often end up joining the military and yeah, i, can, I can definitely say that that is still the case because it fits for three of my friends that joined the military yeah yeah, that's that's probably why I joined. There you go. <laughs> I jo- I joined because I was a military brat from a long line of them, and not joining would have made me the rebel. So, <laughs> seriously, in my family, it's sort of like uh, not is he going to be a doctor or a lawyer? It's you know what color camouflage is he going to be wearing? <laughs> so, it's it's true though. I mean, they've literally got pictures of me as a baby wearing camouflage diaper. <laughs> so, oh so so what did you think of uh, old Juan? there chris i liked him as a character but i thought at least early on he was pretty weak-minded you see you see a lot of that still today he was a blank slate that just kind of absorbed everything around him so when his teacher spoke he he took his moral philosophy and the and the moral philosophy of everything that he could pick and choose from and basically started worshiping it like a religion he just he just kept absorbing and and absorbing it. I didn't see a lot of internal conflict, but I I guess maybe someone in that in that situation in a future where you're at war with possibly the universe, maybe that's maybe that's believable. I I really liked him as a character. I just wish he would make up his mind and man up. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think he knows see, how. Yeah, that's and that's the problem. And this could have been just a. Um a feature of when the novel was written, but like in the intro, they start with him on a mission and he's on the bounce in his, his um, trooper armor. And it's just, you know, they're fighting the bad guys. He's killing them. It's like, uh, just another day. Mm -hmm. And then he's losing his own, you know, mobile infantry guys. And it's, it's like, you know, you could have just shot a target and, you know, you'd never know. He just lost one of his, you know, brothers in arms. It was it was almost like he didn't care. And that sort of struck me that there was the lack of emotion and connection to his own unit. Hmm. I think we saw the connection to his unit when they weren't on the firing line, when they weren't on the bounce, because yeah. it seemed like when when he had moments to himself, he was very philosophic about that and did not like the idea of losing his people. But while he he. It, what what they've shown us throughout the book is that uh, the longer and the more experienced he, the longer he's in, and the more experienced he gets, with all the all the problems of having what, what by the end of the book he's on what his third company. Yes, if you think about and it, the first and the first two were wiped, yeah. and the first two were completely wiped out. So I mean that the guy has got to have serious reservations about making connections with most folks. But I think it's it's pretty clear by the end of the book, considering they renamed the outfit after him, that he had a profound effect on the on the uh, on on the troop, troopers under his command. I can see that. I um, I mean, it did, you're all right that the scene that they start with is actually 
him in his later unit and then it jumps back in time to when he joined and so in that respect yes you do see some precipitating reasons for him to be as detached but it just it struck me as an odd place to start the book ah okay okay. um Hmm. you know so but um we'll transition into the overall plot of the uh of the novel so uh paul what were your were your thoughts on that it's it's it it when you said it's like a day in the life how it starts out right this is this is basically what he's doing is he's giving us an entire biography and very dry at, at times about how he got to where he is and everything that happened along the way he never discusses politics he uh, uh, you know really in depth he doesn't discuss a lot of those things that go on and so the plot is is just basically Heinlein's doing what he can to drag you in before he begins to um, work on the the boot camp stuff and everything else. The plot is basically just uh, here's you know five or seven years of my life. Hmm. Yeah, that's really what it comes down to. All the action is contained from his point of view. I, I, don't, I can't remember how many pages are in boot camp. It's like forty or fifty. It was a large chunk of it. Was just the training montage. Yeah, I think that that was uh, it was something like that. It may have been even longer, but during that period, we got to find out a lot more about what government service means. Right. right. And we got to know, and we got to learn about uh, how all that stuff works. So I thought the way he used the the plot devices to get there and get that to us without saying, as you know, Bob <laughs> is uh, um, see that episode of DRS. The uh, <laughs> I, I think the exposition works really well in this case because of the way it's been done. And the entire plot is like that. We're basically trying to figure out how he got to where he is. And at the beginning of the book, he doesn't even tell us what he is besides being a trooper. Right. Yeah. We don't know that he's actually in charge of a company. Was it a company or a platoon? I think platoon. it's a platoon because I think he's a lieutenant at the end. Yeah, lieutenant. Sorry, my, my military jargon's not up to snuff. But well, yeah, platoon. They were a little bit odd in how they did things because he tried. He uh, Heinlein sort of combined some some stuff when he created the mobile infantry and then you know, the fleet or the the navy, and so it's definitely interesting um, mesh of all of that. Um, I, I was surprised because I, you know, my first experience with Heinlein's uh, Starship Troopers was the movie I remember watching when it first came out. Mm-hmm. Um, so I sort of expected the novel to be very action packed um, mm-hmm. after watching the movie, and it definitely wasn't. It lo- it lacked in the action. I think. I mean, there were some interspersed, but it was definitely more, you know, a, a philosophical treatise of a dystopian future than it really was an action novel. I mean, it was good for what it was, but it definitely was not what I had expected. Um, many of the ideas I think from the plot were were new to me. I mean, even today. Um, but as far as an overall story arc for a plot, other than just the day in the life, I don't know. I don't know that I could have them pin it down more than that. It's, it's not really that difficult to describe. I mean, it just, uh, and, and, you know, for, for 59 or whatever, a lot of literature is written like this. Okay. And that, that's what I found really interesting about this book compared to some of the other, uh, pulp books that were coming out of the time is that it, he was interested in exploring the uh, the philosophy, the morals, the mores, the taboos of of that society, or, or uh, um, that version of humanity. And I just thought it was it was an it was this was all just a convenient device to get that across. Hmm. I was definitely um, taken aback. You know, you you've listened to the news at all, and we're not going to go straight into the politics. But if you listen to the news at all, you constantly hear the oh, the next generation is garbage, we're all doomed, the millennials this, and soon it'll be whatever's after the millennials. <laughs> and you think that's kind of new. And then you listen to him bemoaning the youth in that scene where he <laughs> talks about these kids running around amok, and it's not the kid's fault that their parents didn't discipline them. And it was this lack of corporal punishment and the rise of psychology that doomed everybody. It was, you're looking back at it, and I just picture an old man in his boxers and, you know, wife beater shaking his fist on his lawn, like, you know, <laughs> you're right. you kids. <laughs> and so that, and, and that's, that's exactly, and that's exactly how his, uh, um, uh, who was it that was going through all that? 
it was it was him because he was re, uh, reciting what um, his moral philosophy teacher had taught him. Yes, that guy. Yeah, the colonel. Yeah. So basically, um, that stuff stuck in his craw, and it wasn't until after he graduates from boot camp that he takes a look around and goes, "the the the world is completely different now." The way I see it, the way the way everything that I I absorb, I'm processing it all differently now. Hmm. I mean, getting, so getting whipped will do that to you. <laughs> <laughs> taking taking the lash, I'm telling you, I survived. I mean, I'm we send all you kids to boot camp at age ten. It won't fix this country. Yeah, <laughs> I. Um, uh, I mean, I messed up some in boot camp too, but the worst we had to do was push ups and run in circles. I mean, nobody took a whip to our uh, to us. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's why you weren't in the mobile infantry, boy. Nope, I was just light infantry. <laughs> I wasn't smart enough for them jumping doodads. Oh, so, uh, so Chris, what did you think of the plot overall? I'm getting plot and theme mixed up a little bit, but I think the whole point of the book, it, the way it felt to me, it felt like a prequel. Like this, this whole book is going to be designed to to build this universe and get it ready for the next dozen books that come out. Um, I, I think it's a combination. Yeah. I, I got a little bit of that and I got a little bit of what if as well. I like what if books like, like uh, the, the movie, the matrix. Okay. What if we really are just, mm-hmm. you know, brains in a, in a vat somewhere and, and we're being fed all this information. I like the idea of what if officers have to be enlisted first, you know, what would a world, world look like if all of a sudden these rules that he set up start actually taking place how would people react to that and how would the world change you know only only citizens willing to risk everything get the right to vote wow that that would change a lot of things so just just the whole philosophical part i really really enjoyed that i'm just really disappointed that there's not a starship troopers two and three and well there are the movies no, no, th- those are the films. No. Yeah, if you like Casper Van Dien, that's no, his entire I, career. I, I'd want the books. The, the The films didn't didn't do justice to the book. <laughs> so, no, they're completely different. So, what things. you had said about the uh, what would happen if you had to the officers had to have been enlisted first, and I'm mm-hmm. thinking, you know, you were a sergeant, Chris, in the Marine Corps. I was a sergeant in the Army. Uh, Paul tortures them on the written page. The sergeants, <laughs> I mean. So it's definitely something, you know, you've heard sitting around the NCO club. It's like, oh, if that only that dumb lieutenant. So And we actually had when it, when I was when I was teaching at the communication electronics school, we had a captain who was a former sergeant. And the nickname, hmm. at least in the Marines, for that is a Mustang. Army too. So, it's an older okay. term, but I mean yeah. And and I'll tell you, once as we started appearing in the unit, because everybody rotates out, but as everybody comes in, of course, he would be the first person we saw, you know, standing in our in our alphas and handing our orders, you know, Sergeant Wind reporting as ordered. Uh, we walked out. Usually there's a staff sergeant or, or a gunnery sergeant there, and he'd say, Let me tell you about this, about this uh this captain. You know, he was a sergeant too. He is not gonna screw with you. He knows what it's like being a sergeant. I would have followed that guy into any battle. He, If he would have told me to do anything, I would have done it without question because at least that guy I could trust had been in my shoes and had proven that he actually had a brain. I, I didn't trust all my officers. In fact, I didn't trust any of them for, for various reasons. But had they been enlisted before, I would just thought them superstars. But see, there's a danger in that. Because if everybody starts that way, there's there's a reason there's the lane that's that is what the sergeants do and then it is what the lieutenants and the captains, et cetera, do. And a lot of times that's the danger with the Mustang officers is is sometimes they forget, you know, you're not a sergeant anymore. You're an officer. Go do officer things and let the sergeants do the sergeant thing. So and I was a little bit disappointed when when um, Heinlein didn't address that potential flaw with that system where everybody has to rise through the ranks that way because it definitely happens. He had to have seen it during uh, during his time. I mean, if he was an officer in the in the fifties, he would have served with officers that had started enlisted. You know, World War Two, Korea. Sure. So, I mean, he has to have seen the the downside. I never saw because we only had that one officer that I'm aware of who was a Mustang. 
and I, they're pretty rare, at least at least in the Marines. Just where Chief Warrant Officer fives, I saw one of those as well. <laughs> That's because warrant officers are good at shamming. Oh man, <laughs> <laughs> they they hide somewhere with their coffee. They like stick it in their veins and then they just they're out <laughs> yeah. that's the way it was in the army i mean we we had a maintenance warrant officer i swear i mean he was on the toe the tact table of organization and equipment your chain of command and i saw his picture you know when we were learning it when we got to the unit but i don't think i ever saw him other than the day he handed me the keys to my uh, gun truck and said don't f this up son or it's coming out of your paycheck right and that was literally the it, that was literally the only thing he said to me was, don't F this up, son, or it's coming out of your paycheck. It's like stumbling across a unicorn. It could happen. But right. It's going to be pretty uncommon. <laughs> but yeah. But, but So did you uh, – but, but back to the point. If I, I saw this world get built in front of me where this was a requirement, and I absolutely loved it. The character was the one who introduced it, so I love the character for doing it. And, of course, I love the author for – creating the character who, who made this happen. It, and and I, I know that's my own bias, but I really liked it for that. So, Paul, as the outsider looking in, um, I don't believe you served in the military, correct? Like you went the more traditional civilian route? Oh, okay. You broke up on me? What? I said, so you, you were never in the military, correct? So as the outsider looking in, no. you got you got an opinion on this one? Because you write about um, military convincingly, so... Uh, the closest I got to the military is I was in the uh, uh, Texas A&M ROTC for uh, more than a semester. I had to drop out because of health issues, but uh, it was it was uh, it was boot camp, sort of, hmm. kind of. Anyway, I think that uh, just just to make it clear, citizenship you didn't have to join the military; you had to join a government job. But they told you what job you were going to take. Right. Correct. In his case, he wasn't good for anything but military service. <laughs> they offered him dog handler. Uh, right. Again? But but those they, they did those offer weird dogs. Dog oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, yeah. but it was still military. Oh, that's right. That's right. I thought oh, that's right. for some reason I was thinking them as more of like an like a police sort of arm, but but you're right, technically they were army. Yeah, because they use the uh they use the dogs to what are they called? Neo dogs? Yeah. Yes, neo dogs. And they were neo like dogs. I don't know, half people, Psych- half dogs. And psychic. Well, they yeah. were they were dogs that could uh, that that could talk in their own little language, but they were more or less linked with their with their handler. They they were supposed to use them to to uh, um, basically bring the uh, bugs up from the hole. Oh, it was scary. definitely an interesting. I wanted them to um, expand on that because that seemed very very interesting to me. I wanted oh. an entire book on that. I would love to see a handler go through all that training and everything else, and then get completely and totally crushed when little puppy dog dies yeah. yeah that's one of the things they said that because uh, the major that was doing his career counseling before he you know went off to mi school had said that he had been a handler and when his dog died like he broke mentally and they had to you know lock him up in an insane asylum for a while basically because the bond was yeah. so strong yeah and if the person so, dies first yeah. they shoot the dog just out of mercy yeah that that was that was the other part of that that I found really interesting is that it was basically a symbiotic relationship on both sides. Yeah, I did. I th- I thought that was fascinating. I, I would hoped for more, but and that that was one of the things they never put in the movies, and I don't know why because that's certainly cool. And they had the tech to do it in the '90s when they made the movie. Like they yes, certainly but if could. You remember the first contact they had with the bugs? They all killed themselves. True, but the dogs would have existed <laughs> in the world, so they could have shown yes. some of that. Hmm. Yes, they could have. And that was cool. I mean, I get why they didn't do the suits in the movie. Didn't, you know, cost, but but the dogs, I mean, it's not like we don't have real ones. They could have grabbed and, you know. But hmm. we'll uh before we jump into the world building and description, uh let's take a second for a word from our sponsor. When a strange symbol is found at a burned down historical site, Houston Arson investigator Emmy Aninzo goes to work. As mysterious and inexplicably hot fires break out across the drought-ravaged city, she finds herself digging through the ashes of history. It's a race against time to track down the serial arsonist and explain the seemingly impossible heat of the fires. As strange evidence begins to pile up, Amy wonders if the arsonist is insane, or even worse, possessed. Can Amy and her colleagues find and stop him before the entire city burns? 
Arsec award-winning author Paul E. Cooley wraps ancient mythology around an eerie contemporary tale that will leave you burning for more. Garrus Inferno, a free podcast novel available from shadowpublications.com and iTunes. Some mysteries shouldn't be solved. All right. Thank you, thank you, thank you. So for uh, for the world building and description, what were your, your thoughts on it, Paul? We're going to keep letting you go first since you're the guest and we want to pretend we have the manners. <laughs> <laughs> Notice I said pretend. You should hear Chris and I talk to ourselves. I have three manners. You've obviously never been on DRS. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I think the world building was, and you know, like I mentioned, all this was done so that we didn't have to do the, as you know, Bob, or you know the the standard uh, cliche, the standard cliche ways of getting across the world. And because we're, he's really the only character we, we have contact with. Yeah. That made it a little bit easier because he never had to explain anything to anybody. And that's one of the reasons why Heinlein probably wrote the book this way is so that we we could get it all from the character as he's remembering, as he discovered it, if that makes any sense. It does. So the world building, you know, from from the very first page, you are basically thrown into a cataclysm of of crazy because he's talking about bouncing. Uh, we don't understand what bounce is until probably three or four pages in and not because he tells us, but because we figure mm-hmm. it out. Yeah, but it's a phrase and we, we get the meaning and there, there and and that's pretty much how all the world building works in here is that we get very little description and then we see how something is used later on like he describes the suit sort of and then later on a few more chapters away we'll find out how he controls the suit the entire the the, the lieutenant colonel who was his uh his history and morals teacher was was it history and morals i think history and moral philosophy i think it was Okay. Um, that teacher is there as, again, another foil to basically get around the as you know, Bob. It's to basically give you an idea of what the governments, the folks who came from government service, think about um, the rest of humanity. It's not just that lieutenant colonel. From what Heinlein puts in this book, it seems to me like the entire society is split between two people, those who love have the love of money. And those who are uh, basically particip- really participating, contributing to the society, right, is is basically what it seemed like to me that 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 because everybody he knew that that whose parents weren't in government service were all were all wealthy. Yeah, if you go da- back and look, his dad was a uh, well-to-do business person. Because I remember when in the beginning when he uh, joins the MI, his his dad's uh, like, uh, you know, we'll send you on basically the tour of the world if you just, you know, just don't do this stupid army stuff. Hmm. So yeah, yeah, basically. So they they they've got money. I I wasn't sure if Heinlein was trying to say that everybody who wasn't in government service was rich, <laughs> at least where he was, but um, that did strike me. And it kind of follows along because I think if you go back and you look at some of the other instances where he does run across, you know, non-military government folks, which is very rare in this book, uh, you get the idea that they understand each other, that um, they appreciate his contribution more than the civvies do or the non-citizens, I should say. So I, I found that kind of interesting, and all of that just builds. I mean, so much of the world building has nothing to do with science fiction; it has everything to do with how the society is constructed. Right. Yeah. And so, so. But, but he, but he does work on that. We we know that they've traveled to other planets. We know they have these these spacecraft that can do badass things. We know they have these suits, which are amazing. Uh, we get all of that through his eyes as he is, you know, going through it and you know, basically living it. And so the world building is all this, this it's just all boiled in and he doesn't, the only thing that I found that he really pointed at and he seemed to be peering around the curtain at us was when somebody was giving their, their philosophy. Yeah. So de- that was very, very different from non-citizens. Right. Yeah. I would say um, the other part of that is the description. And, and I mean, some of his descriptions even hold up today. As far as the um, the quality of the prose and like the the suits he was describing when he did describe the 
the um, mobile infantry um, armor, like the, um, I don't know. It just, it didn't strike me as that different than what we read in modern, um, modern science fiction. Yeah. No, I not think, really. I think a lot of authors so. copy versus steel. I, I think a lot of authors uh, model <laughs> their, their own battle armor, which is a, it's a thing that's been around since probably the twenties. Just the idea of being able to jump into a robot and go for it, but I, but, but I think they they model their stuff after this book, and now it's just become so commonplace. People forget where it came from. I think that happens more often than not when you go back and look at historical science fiction. Well, the other thing is that sometimes you know it's maybe it's because he lasted Heinlein's book did. But sometimes, you know, you find out that the uh, speculative part of speculative fiction, that they got it right. And so that's why it sticks out, because <laughs> what he described isn't that different than than some of the modern uh, mech suits that they're working on, you know, even today. Uh, that they give to um, three-year-olds. So, <laughs> and, it, and it was, it was uh, Colonel or Mr. Dubois, and it was the history and, and history and moral philosophy class. Yeah, so, that guy. Google is my friend. <laughs> the lieutenant colonel, I think. Yeah, he was a lieutenant colonel, and um, he was the history and moral philosophy teacher. So I, I would say that the description, I was really impressed, aside from what he got right, just the quality of his writing. I mean, it was it was very poetic, I thought. Yeah, I think so, too. Hmm. I think that's one of the joys of going back and reading a classic book is if it's withstood this test of time and is still that popular, then there's a few things there that we can learn as both as writers and, and as readers just enjoy the hell out of it. Absolutely. I know a lot of the uh, military academies even assign it as, uh, as reading for the, for the learning value of what, you know, stuff that is in there. Um, it's been compared to Sun Tzu's The Art of War. I think that's going a little bit too far, but um, <laughs> yeah, it, it, is, it is there. Well, uh, I was there, there are actually several things that he steals from The Art of War, but doesn't att- attribute to it. Some of what is The Art of War was just you know the colloquial you know common sense. You know, I, I, some of it is there. It's you know he might have recorded it, but it wasn't anything that you couldn't get from von Clausewitz's. Uh, was it? Um, Oh, blood and iron. Is that it? Um, my mind just went blank, but yeah, I just, I mean, I, it was entertaining. It was definitely thought provoking. I don't know that I would put it into the, uh, that high of a, of a realm <laughs> is all I'm saying. Wow. <laughs> so he's going to poo poo the awesome novel that it is. <laughs> shame, shame. I, I saw his I, rating. I, I just it. What's up with that? <laughs> <laughs> So, so since you've uh, already implied that you thought it was awesome, Chris, why don't you tell us what you thought about the world building and description? I was absolutely in, enthralled. I, I, I really didn't care that the action scenes were missing. I was surprised, but I, it didn't bother me at all. I loved how he put everything together, how he described it. I recognized that in, in the school scene, that was exposition, but it was absolutely believable. It didn't seem contrived that you would have these students and you would you would have the teacher and the teacher would be teaching the student things that the student didn't know. And therefore the reader didn't know and filling in all these gaps. It wasn't until afterwards that I thought about it and I said, wow, that was, that was him filling in the gaps for us in a very, what felt like a very natural way. I'm not sure I would, had I written this story, I'm not sure I would have done it the same way, but I also would have written story number two because this was a perfect setup for it. Um, but just, I, I was able to to feel the stress and the anxiety, and and even the the stress and anxiety of the father and his son going off to go join this thing that he just absolutely does not believe in and doesn't even see a use for it. So what if you want to participate? That's not important. Here's what's important. Here's what we've been doing. Here's why we're successful. Um, I, I loved I loved seeing that that conflict and and I loved some of the bug fights. Even though they weren't, they weren't that intense. I I just love the whole strategy behind the story. So yeah, we're on different sides of the spectrum here. <laughs> so just a, a quick Google reference to get it, so I could correct the record. It's Carl uh, von Clausewitz, and I'm, my German, I'm probably butchering it. Was a Prussian general, but he wrote on war. It wasn't blood and iron. Okay. okay. Um, but the um, 
I don't know. It was a hard one for me to judge partly as far as the world building because I saw the movie first. And so in my head, you know, when I do that, you're picturing the characters as the movie. Mm-hmm. You're, it's, it's hard not to. Uh, I mean, I understood definitely the world Heinlein was creating. I could see the distinctions between what was the book and what was the movie. I mean, certainly the fact that Dizzy was a, a female in the movie was, was hugely different. And had that relationship been there in the book, it would have been an entirely different book. <laughs> Um, and I don't know how that would have fly, flown in, uh, in 1959. Um, and it's definitely, you can learn from the way he did the world building and the tricks he used to get around the, as you know, Bob, um, in the description, certainly, um, how he wrote just enough so he could say what he was saying without over saying it to let your mind fill in. And I think that's the beauty of what he did is he left just enough for you to, you know, to frame the house and then he let you decorate the walls. Yeah. Right. It's sort of, and so because he did it that way, you can kind of extrapolate. I wonder how much of modern readers who say, Oh, he was so prescient in in his predictions because he wrote, he framed the house and let you decorate it. Are we just sort of laying ourselves on top of it? Or did he really do all that they're attributing (laughs) to him? I don't know, (laughs) but that's the sign certainly of a, of a, a master at what he's doing. And his, his description was definitely, like I said, well done. Um, and the tech he was envisioning, I mean, that wasn't, I don't know how common what he was doing was from everything on the research, on the um, reviews and, and the literature that I found, it, everyone seemed to think that or attribute the, the tech he was creating as groundbreaking. Um, which is, you know, doesn't surprise me with, a, he, you know, he graduated from Annapolis. Everyone who graduates from the federal academies has a engineering degree. <laughs> Even <laughs> history majors have a, have a, you know, a bachelor of science, not arts, but science in history because of all the math they have to take. Hmm. Um, so, I mean, you know, it doesn't surprise me that he, he envisioned the tech the way he did, but it's certainly groundbreaking. And, and that has stood the test of time. I mean, he used nuclear when, you know, we probably have other options now that we would have known about. Um, some of his uh, descriptions, I think, of like the psychology stuff. So the hypnosis and the use of that to make people calm before mm-hmm. battle. I don't know how much of that would stand up to modern psychology. Um, I know when they had the secret base that they did their refueling and they stopped at, uh, it's the it's the planet, and I can't remember what it was, where he did his OCS training. Um, they mentioned some of the evolutionary and the botany and yep, all that, yep, yep. Um, and all the planetary planetary evolution. I don't know if that science holds or not. I, I did know that it sounded interesting, but I don't know how well that would have stood the test of time. But... I mean, he was he was definitely a thinker. I'm not sure he was even trying to do hard sci-fi. I think he was partly telling his story and partly maybe uh, describing his utopian future. Well, I I don't think he was trying to tell hard science fiction, but the details that you think are important that you were notice are based on your world experience, and so. I don't know, as an infantryman describing a scene, I might talk about the terrain, the plants, the smell, the wind, you know, somebody that's, you know, an IT person might notice, oh my good, look at all those power lines. And oh, by the way, that pain over there, that tells me they buried something. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, like so his okay. worldview is definitely shaped by his, his experience as an engineer. Okay. And, and that was all I was getting at. Hmm. Anyway, you guys got anything else you want to add to the, uh, the world building and description? Yeah, I mean- I think he kept it pretty general on even when they when they go to pee that uh, um, a lot not to urinate but planet, planet pee. pee sorry <laughs> smart ass <laughs> and of course every time I say that I immediately remember the song from the 80s or the band from the 80s called planet pee uh, the uh, comp- I wonder if that's uh, connected uh, hmm gee I wonder <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I thought that the you know, one of the reasons why we don't get too much description of the worlds themselves and those kinds of things, like you were talking about in the infantry, is these guys are always in their suit. They're either yeah. on the ship naked, practically, or they're they're in a suit on the planet. I mean, that's basically their life. Mm. Their their environment Sorry. never changes. It looks yeah. different, but it never really changes. Yeah. So basically, what they're viewing through the, through the porthole is all that matters. Everything else is a static. I can definitely relate to that now that you mention it in that way. I know when we were in Iraq, because, you know, everybody, you know, had a different mission, but I, I escorted convoys. And so for me, you know, I was always in the back of a gun truck 
driving around. So, you know, for me, you know, one MSR is pretty much the same as another. And half the time I couldn't tell you exactly where I was. So it wasn't like you were at, you know, fill in the blank city. So, I mean, I could definitely see how that affects your, your worldview. Generally speaking, if you remembered something with enough detail like that, it's because something really, really bad happened. Right. Exactly. Something really unexpected that stuck with you. Right. So I hadn't considered that, you know, the effect of the suit, but you're right. It was a closed, closed system. So that would do it. Okay. So, uh, well, we'll transition to the major themes and then we'll just list them off and sort of hopefully wax poetic on it. But, uh, so one of the major themes attributed to this book was the, uh, the rise of militarism in society writ large as a social commentary. So, uh, what was your take on that, Paul, as a theme for the book? That's a huge can of worms because the, if you go back and you look, for some reason, Heinlein had a love affair with Pinochet. Okay. I don't know exactly, but but he would never go to meet him. And that that's I find that kind of disturbing, especially in the context of Starship Troopers. I have to go back and look at the dates. I meant to do that, but I, I hadn't done that. But the, the militarist side of it was also from one angle. In other words, uh, Starship Troopers is all about Rico's experience and what he sees. We never get any kind of clue what the citizens actually think is going on or what they see or what they say or anything else. We don't get any of that. All we do is we get the the military side, even though we know that that's a very small side of, of the citizenry. I think we get a little point of view from the father, but he seems to just think it's it's a waste of time that is really not important. He wasn't a citizen. Right. He wasn't a citizen. Okay, I, I see what you're saying. Right. So you see what I'm saying? So so basically we don't we, we don't get an idea of, of how really quote unquote militaristic the society was because mm-hmm. we only get one point of view. And he's completely divorced from everything else is going on with the human race. This is the world he knows, this is his life, this is his universe. Now, the philosophy that is in in here is nothing new, so to speak. Uh, some of the ideas of how to implement it are new. But the, um, in fact, uh, I would say that it's not militaristic so much as it is socialistic. Yeah. When I did a quick Google search based on when you mentioned him and Pinochet from uh, the Argentinian, Argentina, right? Revolution? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, and so one of the things they talked about was how some of that is what converted him from being somewhat socialistic to more of a right wing libertarian. Right. Um, hmm. So that's definitely something to consider. So what about you, Chris? What was your take on the the idea that militarism was a major theme? I don't know. It, I I kind of disagree with that with that summary that mi- militarism was a theme because of the need for the military, because of the threats to the entire planet, I think that would be a natural response. Especially, I, I, I think the way to, to end wars between nations is to go ahead and have a good old alien invasion. Give us a common enemy. We wouldn't. I look forward <laughs> to the day. Hopefully, we survive. But I think then we would actually see world peace because well, then we can turn all of our hatred and all of our weapons and everything towards a common enemy. We don't have to fight each other. Uh, but I, th- militarism, I think, was a result of the wars that needed to be fought. But I don't see the military as taking over and being totalitarian and, and being the jackbooted thugs that stomp people. Yeah, I know that um, they did, you know, he mentioned the one world government sort of thing, but he never really went that in depth into what that meant to him or, or to the universe that he was writing or how right? it even, which worked. I sort of, or how it even worked other than to vote, you needed to have served. But other than that, we really don't know much about it. So I don't know. It was definitely interesting. Um, I mean, I can see how the militarism as a theme could be a concern. People still worry about that in a uh, modern world. Um, but I don't know. My, my take on it was that, you know, in a world this high tech as this and it's the, you know, the modern world, if you want to extrapolate, you know, where weapons are so advanced, designed to kill people from so far away, 
how do you defend against it and remain free of those militaristic traits? I mean, it's sort of, I think they, they sort of are symbiotic at a certain point because you only are as free as you're willing to defend it. It's just, you know, as, as my understanding of the of philosophy um, and that, you know, those that the critiques that I saw against the militarism in this, this story, and I'll try to find some of the, um, the literary articles so we can link them in the show notes. But my critique of that is basically, you know, if we lived in utopia, all of that would be true, but we don't. So sometimes, um, you know, you've got, yeah. what's the expression? You've got to break the eggs to make the omelets. I, I kind of see some of it was more utilitarian than, than militaristic. So, but one of the other themes credited by academia, which, by the way, is why we invited Paul again, so he could say all the smart stuff while we grunted and Chris ate crowns. Um, and I'm out of crowns, mister. You made a poor choice. <laughs> but one of the other themes that I was more on board with was sort of a coming-of-age story um, for, for the, the book. I know Heinlein was definitely known for his juveniles. And a sort of yeah. even almost created a formula. I know um, J.D. Sawyer, J.D. Daniel Sawyer has his uh, everyday novelist podcast where he even outlines some of what is the, um, the formula for the Heinlein juvenile. And then he wrote one, I think. What was it? Um, Suave Rob, I think he said it was. <laughs> but yes. Yeah, so, God, no. No, I don't know. I know he wrote one. I remember him talking about it. But, you know, they actually break. St- he created a genre of sort of the. Uh, men's adventure mm. fiction for kids. Right. So, so what was your take on that, Paul, as far as the, uh, how much of a coming of age story starship troopers was, you know, the, the character go undergoes really so little change. Uh, he's an observer. He, he is p- pretty much an observer throughout the entire book. Uh, he's, his. uh, how do we put this? His moral center or his personality center, whatever you want to call it, is so detached that he basically starts to believe that when I first read the book, this is how I took it, that whoever he talks last to is is the one that has the, you know, has got the most sway over him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> Until he gets through boot camp. And then he starts to make his own assessments but still it's all based on the fact that he finally found something he could grasp and uh, i think that's one of the when he talks about how much he hated mr dubois and 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 you know they nobody paid attention to that class they didn't have to pass it he didn't understand when the guy was so hard on him all the time you know all this other kind of stuff and yet that was his favorite teacher that's the teacher he keeps going back to and remembering so it seems to me that his entire coming of age is coming to grips with the fact that he has re- completely reinvented himself. But the fact that he's still so detached from everybody and everything except for his unit, the idea, the concept of the unit, not even the people, but the concept of the unit, the concept of the organization, it it it, it just seemed to me like he he became even more static than when he started. Yeah, you saw you saw some of that when he makes his first combat jump, you know, with the unit that end up getting getting wiped, his first one. And you hear about, you know, he he mentions that they're walking around the ship and they've got these earrings with the skull and, and the crossbones or yeah. and then I guess the more jumps that they combat jumps they make, the more skulls or, or whatever they get. Um, more bones the more bones and so you know that's the expression making your bones but so the more you you do that and he's like really excited to get his own and he seems really naive and and childlike in that scene and then he finally gets it and they ship him to another unit and they're like yeah we don't do that and so yeah. and he was right on board with whatever the newest thing was it stuck me that if he thought he earned it he'd be like well i do it's fools so i'm gonna wear it um, you know what I mean? Like, like <laughs> that was a perfect opportunity for him to show his individualism. He was with that unit. He earned it. But then as soon as the next guy says, Nope, we don't do that. He's like, Oh, okay. I, I think it also, uh, you, you can go. Yeah. He, it, it was just a trinket to him. It didn't really mean anything. It was status among that crew, but outside of that crew, it, it didn't mean Jack squat. And then he finally figured out that these people had been making dozens and dozens and dozens of jumps. And, 
he ain't Jack. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't see this as a coming of age at all. All I saw was him get really good at his job. That's that's all I saw. He his his morals stayed the same. He he matured a little bit, but he really everything focused on his job. That's all I saw. Yeah. So yeah, um, I completely disagree with coming of age. I, I don't think it actually happened. I, I think the uh, the literaries and the academia crowd were wrong on this one as well. I, I didn't really see any any growth. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Paul, <laughs> but. Uh, I am not an academia person. I'm not a literati either. I write I, monster books. Leave me alone. Uh, I, I do believe Terry Mixon says you commit the crime of literature. <laughs> he has accused me of committing the crime of literature, as says Dan Sawyer. So, yes, I, I do commit literature on occasion. I do know Heinlein, and I think maybe the people writing these reviews, I wonder if they actually read the book. Because I know Heinlein definitely wrote Juveniles. The uh, Space Cadet, John was it John Corbett or could be getting it wrong i know the space cadet book uh, series was was definitely you know the juvenile coming of age story but uh yeah i didn't i didn't buy it for this one and the uh the last theme that uh that i found on some of the the academic writing was the the moral decline of society was sort of a theme what was your take on that one paul again it's so difficult to really grasp that because we saw almost none of the society we saw people who had opinions about what it meant, but that's and those are the only opinions we're given. We're never really given any kind of of touchstone for it. Mm, no neutral third I, party. I, I didn't. I yeah. We 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 never because it we, it was never discussed with anyone that had a different opinion. We don't know what was really going on there. And like I said, he was so detached from everything. He would be the last person <laughs> on the planet to tell us that society is. Is, is decadent because he doesn't even know what the hell that is. He's fighting for it. He believes in it. But but remember, he can't even spend his freaking money or vote until he's out of the military. Yeah, true. <laughs> they, they do miss. So that. how how could so how could he possibly have any idea? And he didn't have any idea when he was in high school because he was so detached and living in a bubble. So I don't really see that as a. Uh, I don't see any kind of decline. I know they talked about it, but the bottom line is I didn't see it. I saw that as an opinion. I did not see it anywhere else. Yeah. No display. I yeah, agree hundred I percent. Mean, I, I could see when, when they talk about it, you're right. It was no, there was no perspective. You just, you know, for all we know, this is a rogue opinion among the military that isn't popular among the vast majority. Cause you definitely get the idea that, the vast majority of people don't bother going through citizen, the the service just to vote. Like they don't see it as that big of a deal. Um, you know, ba based purely on the scene with his father, where his dad's like, yeah, we don't, we don't need that to, to succeed in business. Um, so, but I mean, I could see some of the concerns he rose, he rose, um, that he brought up when he talked about the, the class with, with Dubois, um, but then the flip side of that is that I always wondered that was my takeaway from those moral philosophy flashbacks was, you know, exactly how free are you and how um, if they're making you do the right thing against your will, is the society really any more virtuous than it was before? Is there virtue in being forced to do something, even if it's, quote, the right it's, thing? It's not being forced, though, because they're 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 volunteers. They're free to resign at any time. No, the. And, and the corporal punishment to enforce the will, the whippings, all of that was what created this society. Ah, okay. When he talks about like the decline of the 21st century and the, the kids run amok and all of that, they mentioned that the, that they created this virtuous one world government basically through the force of the whip and, and, and public shaming. Some of the public shaming is just the cultural norms being enforced. But I mean, if they're doing the right thing because you're beating the, snot out of them is it really virtuous because they didn't make that free choice we will we'll make you virtuous by putting a gun to your head right that was my takeaway when they talked about morality is like eh, well here's a little bit squishy for me here's something i've learned actually working with uh with some pretty messed up kids if you can get a kid at first to do the right thing for the wrong reason that you can actually train a kid to do that as a habit, to do the right thing for the right reason afterwards. 
if you just get them, it, it, it's like a heavy boulder. You get it moving in the right direction, they'll continue it, maybe with a little prodding once in a while, but usually no more than words after that. I don't know if he thought about that, but but that's what I found. I mean, yeah. it. I think it does. It does bring up, um, and of course, it. I haven't this. I haven't uh, read enough of his biography to 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 get a clue of this. But I wonder what he thought about the beats of the of the fifties, and maybe that's what he was talking about. The beats are the beatniks. The oh. beat generation. The beatniks. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. I don't know. Ginsburg and and uh, folks like that. Hmm. Interesting. Very interesting. The um. Do you have anything else you want to want to add in there, Chris? No, I I didn't see I didn't see a moral decline theme any more than any other generation thinks that the kids are rotten of their generation. Yet somehow we're still here. Yeah, the sky is always falling, Chicken Little. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so what? Uh, well, then let's not beat the dead horse. So, what was your overall thoughts on this, uh, Paul? Well, it's, it's funny because I, I read this when I was, I think, 13. And I remember getting a whole bunch of shit from the jocks because the uh, uh, the paperback had a bunch of bugs on the cover of it. He's like, oh, man, <laughs> he's reading a book about killing bugs, man. Um, so I, I remember that incident specifically. But the book definitely took on a, a, a lot more meaning to me this time around. Because I was old enough and mature enough to uh, analyze what what Heinlein was saying about the politics, about the philosophy, et cetera, and infinitum, and looking for those nuances. So seeing it again through older eyes was very interesting to me, and I'm really glad that that y'all gave me an excuse to do that. It is a, I think, a wonderful example of uh, old sci-fi that still stands up. And uh, so I really recommend folks folks read it. So the cover that you had um, when you read it the first time is the one with the giant bug and the humans look minuscule in comparison. I think it was just a a, a single a single human being and wearing a spacesuit with maybe four bugs on the cover in each of the corners. I don't hmm. remember seeing that okay. one when I did the research. The one I saw, the one that's most common now is they use the one from the movie poster to reference it back. And then I saw the one with him in the the powered armor as they're putting the helmet on with the sort of space age piping behind them. But I didn't see the one similar to what you're describing. I definitely think it was was a long time ago. (laughs) I I definitely think the evolution of the cover is definitely something worth looking at. Hmm. That, Uh, that I I never even thought about that, but yeah, you're right. The, uh, um, the definite, how, how the cover has changed over the years. And you do the same thing with Fahrenheit 451 really says something about the age in which it's published. These reprints are published. Yeah. Right. So I definitely thought it was, uh, I thought that was interesting as I looked at all the different covers and I made the mistake when I wrote uh, my book review because it used the, um, when I did it with the Goodreads with links to my, the Facebook account. And I, because the version, the newer version has the cover from the movies, all the purists were like, how dare you watch the movie? The book is sacrosanct. And <laughs> some of them really, really lit into me. I'm like, dude, look, it's the book review. It's Goodreads. But yeah. anyway, yeah. The, it was the, the, movie, the movie is a completely separate animal that, yeah, it, it's just almost no resemblance. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I enjoyed the movie. Don't get me wrong, but it definitely, other than the character names, there wasn't a whole lot of similarity. What about you, Chris? What was your overall uh, take on the book? I I give it a four out of five, maybe four and a half out of five. This is something I'm going to read again. I learned a lot from it, just as just as an author of how to introduce information and how to make it flow and seem natural. That's that's the best part. I got to out of this book is how to do that. Yeah, I could see that. Um, I don't know. I, I gave it a three out of five. It was, it wasn't bad. It was a classic novel that felt more like a academic treatise and a, a philosophical rambling than it really did a true novel. Um, because the plot seemed only about expressing the, the opinions of the author in this. Um, I, Maybe that's my modern reader sentiment about what I feel 
you know, makes a good story. I don't know. I, I, I know my expectations were definitely colored by having seen the movie first. I, I enjoyed it for what it was, but it's, you know, it's not something I was raving about either. Um, I do know that the, I've, I've hinted at a super secret project that I can't, can't tell about because I've signed a non-disclosure until it, it publishes. But in that universe, there's a mech suit type deal. And I remember when I sent it to the editor, he's like, you just read Heinlein, didn't you? Because I had the, <laughs> the bouncing around for the, uh, for the tactic. So, I mean, it definitely, it sort of has crossed the line from just a book to creeping into society, I think, of the, the genre specifically. <laughs> So, so tell us, JR, what, what email address should uh, everybody send the hate mail to? <laughs> Chris? Chris nope. Winder? <laughs> I don't know. I just I, – I didn't hate it, but it wasn't uh, my all-time favorite for sure. <laughs> I, yeah, I, and I know. I'm going to get that, the letters. <laughs> I can't wait. Well, no, I, I know. You're, you're entitled to your opinion no how no matter how long wrong it is <laughs> <That's right. laughs> no but I, I mean i i could i can definitely take your point and i can see how uh how you could form that opinion and it, it's perfectly valid it's perfectly valid so i grew up reading the science fiction of the 80s and 90s which is definitely i can tell um influenced Terry because I love Terry Mixon's uh, Empire of Bone series. So it's got that sort of uh, space opera, large, expansive universe and an infinite number of possibilities. Like that's kind of what I look for in a story these days. So you can always, you know, picture the world when it shuts, when the books close and you're done reading for the day, you can sort of picture the world still going. Uh, Anne McCaffrey's uh, Dragon Riders of Pern. Did I pronounce her name right? I'm never sure on her last name. I think so. But like, like that kind of story is what's engaging to me. So I just, this was different. I mean, I, like I said, I enjoyed it for what it was, but it was more like reading. I don't know. One of the classics that you're reading for your English class, than necessarily something that was fun. I enjoyed reading the taming of the shrew as in the Shakespeare novel, but I don't know that I would call it, you know, my favorite reading I'd read outside of class. Well, not everybody has a good taste. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, I know we, uh, we're we running at the hour mark, so and that's where we try to keep these episodes. So, uh, in conclusion, when you send your hate mail to Paul, not to JR, <laughs> Paul, <laughs> do you want to tell them where they can find you one more time? And again, it'll be in the show notes. You can find me at shadowpublications.com for the free podcast as well as uh, essays and reviews. You can find me at patreon.com slash Paul E. Cooley. I have an Amazon author page. I have a Facebook author page, et cetera, at infinitum. You can email me at, at uh, paul at, at shadowpublications.com. Chris, if you're still talking to me after that review, <laughs> do you want to tell the readers where they can find the uh, Sci-Fi Shenanigans podcast? Yeah, you can find us at www.sfshenanigans.com or on Twitter at SFS at Sierra Foxtrot Sierra underscore show. All right. Until next time. Thank you for spending some of your precious time with us. For Chris Winder, I'm J.R. Hanley, and this was the Sci-Fi Shenanigans Podcast. We'll be back next week at the same time where we'll indulge our love of space and all things that go boom. All right. Thank you for sticking with us through that uh, archived episode that was in the uh, in the digital memory hole that we found. We thought you'd enjoy it. So thank you for spending some of your precious time with us. For Nick Garver and Doc Seska, I am J.R. Hanley, and this was the archive for the Blasters and Blades podcast. We'll be back at our regular scheduled time where we'll indulge our love of nerd culture, cheesy jokes, and all things that go boom.